Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. So I know I just did a whole three-part nut tree miniseries and called it done last episode, but I'm already back with another tree nut. But this is one you may or may not consider to be on the same level as other snack nuts, and it's definitely not botanically a nut. I'm talking about pine nuts. Not every pine species produces seeds that are commercially sold as nuts, but there are around 20 species in the pine genus worldwide that do. And while I'll touch on pine nuts as a whole product, I am focusing specifically on the trees that produce pine nuts in America, what we call pinion pines. And there's actually more than just one pinion pine in the U.S. as well. There's a whole subsection of the pine group that contains around eight trees I'm collectively talking about today. Pinion pines have a close connection with human history in the American Southwest and still bear the weight of indigenous identity in that region today. Let's explore these ties, but make sure and leave some room for how humans have enjoyed pine nuts in general around the world. This is my sixth episode covering pine trees, now passing figs as my most repeated topic. But I hesitate to refer to this as a repeated topic as covering so many different species within the same group should really be communicating just how diverse a given group's members truly are. What this should be illustrating is that there's so much nuance among these seemingly similar trees, not to mention all the other evergreen conifers that receive the blanket moniker of pine. Granted, most of these evergreen conifers are found in the overall pine family, including firs, spruces, larches, and more. Leaving those for their own past and future episodes, let's focus in on the specific pine genus, known scientifically as Pinus. There are around 120 different pine species in total, and the group is carefully and thoroughly compartmentalized into subgenera, sections, and subsections in order to best organize all this diversity that I've been talking about. Pinion pines, of which there are 8 to 12 depending on how you organize and label things, belong to their own subsection. If you'd like to make connections to other pines, the pinion subsection belongs to the same section as bristlecone pines. These are considered the oldest trees, and the oldest organisms in general, alive on our planet today. The pinion-slash-bristlecone section is further connected to other sections within the subgenus that contain species like the white pines and the limber pines, but the further out you go, the more differences you will find. All that to say, our pinions are most closely related to the bristlecone pines, and that remarkably long lifespan is something these two subgroups have in common. Pinion pines, depending on species, are known to live for up to a thousand years. To put this into human perspective, there is a pinion pine out there somewhere that first broke soil and felt the same sunlight that shone on the backs of Vikings as they pillaged England and the first crusaders as they pillaged Jerusalem. These trees can be found across southwestern North America, ranging from southern Idaho to central Mexico. Although many of the Mexican pinion pine species have been newly identified since the mid-1900s. This is due to a couple of factors. 
either genetic science aiding in distinguishing harder-to-see variations on a molecular level, or researchers being able to study plants in remote sections of mountain ranges that were previously too difficult to reach and finding isolated populations of these unique species. Even among pines, there's some interesting variability in the pinion species. My go-to means of identifying differences among needle trees as a whole is to look at how the needles grow from the twigs they are born on. Spruce and fir needles grow individually, but spruces protrude from little woody pegs. Larch and pine needles grow in clusters, but larch clusters are circular, and the needles are also deciduous, and pine clusters form out of these little papery sheaths. When looking at these pine needle bundles, you can further narrow down what kind of pine you may be looking at by counting how many needles are in each bundle. Many pines produce five needles per sheath exactly, while others may do two or three. That's an important distinction. Across just the handful of pinion pines, each species may produce anywhere from one to five needles per bunch. What I mean by this is that each species individually produces a set amount of needles per bundle, but rare is it to see such a significant point of diversity amidst such a small group of otherwise similar pines. And it's even more significant that one of those species, Pinus monophylla, produces its pines singly. I had mentioned how the whole one needle thing was otherwise unique to spruces and firs, but that's what monophylla means, one leaf. And that's why this tree's common name is single leaf pinion. Fun fact, this species is one of two designated state trees in Nevada, the other being the related Great Basin bristlecone pine. But like I said, the overall structure of these pinions is otherwise similar across the group's different species. I'm going to use Pinus edulis, commonly referred to as just pinion pine, or Colorado pinion, as my type species to describe the group collectively. The Colorado pinion happens to also be a state tree, designated by, you guessed it, New Mexico. The general form of these trees is often shorter and bushier compared to quote-unquote normal forest trees, but they commonly grow in various parts of the desert southwest or high up in semi-arid mountains where resources are scarce, so they do their best with what they've got. If you do find pinions growing in sites with tasty nutritious soil and good amounts of rainfall, they can absolutely reach heights of up to 50 feet or 15 meters and form a good-looking pine forest but more commonly, the tallest pinions don't end up reaching half that height. I mentioned that needle amounts vary species to species, but Pinus edulis does produce its needles in pairs. However, its range overlaps with the single-leaf pinion, and they frequently hybridize. When they do, it's anyone's guess how many needles you're going to get in each bundle. Regardless of amount, pinion needles are relatively short, only half an inch to two inches in length, somewhere around 1 to 5 centimeters. And at this moment, I'd also like to point out that evergreen needles don't stay on the tree forever. These specialized leaves simply stay on for more than one growing season, while still growing new needles each year, thus ensuring that there's always some green canopy on the tree. For the Colorado pinion specifically, needles that grow in this spring will stay on the tree for around nine years before finally yellowing and falling down like any other leaf. Pinion pine cones are also relatively short. They get about as long as the needles do. 
but one notable characteristic is that they are as wide as they are long, so the cone scales really flare out. It's in those scales that you find the tree's seed, what we call the pine nut. There's around 10 to 20 seeds per cone, each one about the size of a piece of orzo pasta and covered in a thin husk. They're bigger than the seeds of most other pine species, but honestly, still quite small. Significantly so, considering the massive impact pine nuts have had on human culture in the American Southwest and around the world. One of the most important classes in my university's forestry program was called dendrology. It's where you learn all the names of the trees, how they relate to one another, and some skimming over the role each tree plays in their natural ecosystems as well as in our human societies. Our lab periods were mostly outside so that we could stroll through forests and parks and arboretums and get to know each tree face to face. Every time we were outside meeting a new tree, there would always be this one guy in my class, I think his name was Chris, but I don't remember, who would ask each time, can I eat this? It was kind of silly and funny because he would pull out this line, for every single tree. But our professor, Dr. Kuzmik, who I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, would always respond with patience and grace, as what plant parts are edible has been an important distinction to make for humans since the beginning of our existence. On the last day of the semester before our final exams, Dr. Kuzmik held an optional class. Come if you want to do some last-minute review and hang out, or just stay home if you're completely prepared and too cool to consider coming to class fun. As you would expect, only a handful of us showed up to this optional review class. So to reward us, Kuzmik had brought in a small container of pinion pine nuts. He went into this great spiel about how expensive and rare these were because a tree only produces so many and the harvesting of the nuts comes with great difficulty, not to mention the fact that they're delicious with a complex and buttery flavor unlike any other snack. He gave us each just a couple and insisted that we take a whole minute to savor each individual seed. After the pine nuts were distributed, our classmate Chris came into the room apologizing for being late. Dr. Kuzmik got up, excited that Chris, of all people, was here to enjoy this tree-based delicacy. He starts right back up with this spiel again. These are pinion pine nuts. And he starts pouring a couple into Chris's hand. Chris, of course, knows his line and cuts in with that now famous tagline, Can I eat them? Dr. Kuzmik, with light in his eyes, says, Yes, Chris, you can! But as he opens his mouth to give him the same song and dance over the cost of this rare delicacy and the need to savor them, Chris pops the whole handful of seeds right in his mouth and just starts chowing down. A look of sheer panic and disappointment swirled into a ghostly shade of white, painting Dr. Kuzmik's face behind his full gray mustache, and he stood there staring at this student, speechless. All the while, Chris obliviously nodded his head and said, Oh man, these are really good, and came to sit down at our table while the few of us present looked on in shared shock and uncertainty before breaking out into laughter. 
Pinion Pine Nuts are special for a number of reasons. They'll always be special to me for that perfect conclusion to a difficult and rewarding semester of college, but to simply say that they're a special food for the Southwest Indian tribes would be the greatest understatement spoken of humans and trees. Good from the Woods, the leading online retailer of Pinion Pine Nuts, describes the relationship in that the pine nut was to the people of the Great Basin what the buffalo was to the Plains people. It is a staple of diet that ascends to the level of cultural identity for people like the Apache, Pueblo, Diné, Ute, Shoshone, to name but a few. But of course, it starts with food. Older anthropological writings suggest that the Santa Clara Pueblo of New Mexico believed the pinyon pine is the oldest of all trees, and the pinyon nuts were the first food for the people. It could very well be that this was a primary source for the humans who first arrived in this region, and evidence is increasingly supporting human presence in the American Southwest much earlier than previously thought, over 20,000 years ago. Pinion nuts are absurdly efficient as a food source. Though seemingly small, they are bigger than most other plant seeds and contain every essential amino acid for the human diet. They can be eaten whole, raw or lightly roasted, preferably one at a time, or ground into a paste and incorporated into a variety of dishes that way. Not every year offers the same yield at harvest time, however, so there are lean years where pinion nuts must be carefully rationed, or bountiful years when feasts can be made of these seeds. An opinion pine needs to be at least 25 years old before it produces seeds, so managing orchards can be hard to justify. Harvesting pinion nuts is a process that can happen in a few different ways, but it's always time-consuming and requires a large, coordinated social effort. But this group engagement with the resource is culturally important as well. The harvest typically starts in late summer and lasts all the way through fall. At first, the cones are likely to still be closed and covered with a sticky pitch or sap. These cones are collected whole, making sure to not break the branch it grew on, either by hand or with long sticks made of willow that end in a V-shape to grab those higher up. The cones are then either set out into the sun to dry, or sometimes roasted in a fire to encourage the scales to more quickly offer their bounty, depending on the needs of the community. Later in the season, the cones will open on their own while still on the tree. Harvesting at this point involves shaking the trees to get the seeds to fall from their scales and collecting them in what are called burden baskets or laying blankets and tarps around the base of the tree and wrapping up whatever falls to the ground there. One thing to consider is that humans are not the only beings out in the forest trying to stock up on winter food. All manner of birds and mammals go after the pinion nuts, and sometimes it's just easier to let them get what they need first. Pack rats are known to make stockpiles of the seeds, and if those can be located, then it's simplest to just take from what's already been hoarded. But it's important to remember to always leave some for the pack rats. If they don't have enough to make it through the winter, then they can't do all the work of collecting and gathering for you next year. It's also just polite. But like how the buffalo provides all manner of materials to the plains tribes, so too does the pinion pine become a number of different products for the peoples of the Southwest, aside from food. At the end of the day, this is a tree we are talking about, and the most common importance of trees for humans in general is to use the wood as fuel for fire and construction material for tools and buildings. I also mentioned how the early harvest cones are covered in pine pitch. This too is a valuable resource. 
Part of the process of this early cone collection is to take a stick, usually a twig from a pinion pine, and gather this sticky sap from the side of the cone. This can be used as a sealant and is rubbed all over the outside of those woven burden baskets in order to make them watertight. Pitch has also been employed extensively as a universal adhesive, being the primary means of affixing handle to head for a variety of different tools. That pitch would also be collected for medicinal purposes, primarily as a treatment for cuts and sores, either applied to a wound directly or dried and ground into a powder. Its purpose is that of an antiseptic, preventing any possible infections by sealing off the injury in the same way that openings in woven containers are sealed off and made watertight. The pinion pine takes on a new and otherwise unique significance in regards to its use in ceremony and culture. There is a recurring trend of the tree being incorporated into what some cultures, like the Apache, refer to as sunrise ceremonies, which is when girls go through puberty. For a girl going through her sunrise ceremony, it is customary to eat primarily pinion nuts, or to reside in structures made of pinion wood. They would be given scratching sticks made of pinion twigs to scratch their skin when they're itchy so that they don't leave marks with their fingernails. As to why this tree has such an important connection with this specific point in a young girl's life, I cannot say. There seems to be a general feminine connection with the tree, as I've read of another cultural practice involving a couple trying for a child to eat a lot of pinion nuts if they are wanting to have a girl. As an aside, I just love that every human culture seems to have these strange, specific, and unique practices when trying for a child to encourage their prospective baby to be a specific gender. It's a fun bit of universal nuance. Much of the lands of the Southwest, especially the Great Basin region covering most of Nevada, are federally managed in the modern day. But harvesting of pinion nuts is still something that is widely allowed with some regulation because of the significance of this food source. On lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service, anyone can harvest up to 25 pounds of pinion nuts without needing a permit of any kind. A single pound of pinion nuts is something like 1,500 seeds and lands managed by the National Park Service have general allowances for indigenous communities to access these spaces without charge in order to practice aspects of their traditional cultures, which includes pinion nut harvesting. It's important to remember that these places that are often labeled as wild and free of humans have in fact not been free of human influence for tens of thousands of years. We have no real concept of what this continent looked like over 23,000 years ago, at least to make any realistic, specific management plan for. So it is perfectly valid, and honestly vital, to allow for this practice of human culture in these park spaces. And while there are means like these, or online sources mentioned earlier, to get some pinion nuts for yourself, this is not where pine nuts on your grocery store shelves generally come from. In the modern day, most store-bought pine nuts come from Asia, either the Far East like China, Korea, and the Siberian side of Russia, or the Near East like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. But the history of international pine nut trade comes from the Mediterranean. The name pinion that we use in America actually comes from the Spanish word for pine trees, specifically for the species of stone pines that grow around southern Europe and produce edible seeds. And like in North America, humans around the Mediterranean have been eating pine nuts for thousands of years. 
written references of pine nuts can be found in ancient Greece and Rome, and perhaps the Bible. There is a mention in the Old Testament by the prophet Hosea of a fruit found in the green fir tree, and this is theorized to refer to the seeds of the stone pine. In addition to being a general food source, evident from Greeks wrapping them in grape leaves or Roman legionnaires taking them on long journeys to Britain, pine nuts were known in this region as an effective aphrodisiac. From Greece to the Middle East, there are really specific instructions involving honey, almonds, and pine nuts, including exact amounts of each and the number of days to consume them in a row that allegedly help the consumer acquire great vigor and enhance the overall experience. I somehow doubt you'll find this detail on the side of a bottle of pesto. Unfortunately, this strategy and all the other wonderful products made today with pine nuts, both sweet and savory, are to be avoided by anyone with tree nut allergies. But there's also a specific pine nut species that everyone should avoid. I mentioned how there's only so many pine species that produce these edible seeds, but one to be extra wary of is Pinus armandii, the Chinese white pine. The Chinese white pine grows naturally in northern China, and its seeds are actively harvested and exported from the Shanxi province. Research has indicated that this species is prone to afflicting its consumer with a disturbance referred to as pine nut syndrome or pine mouth. These pine nuts taste like any other, but in the days to follow, your mouth is filled with this bitter metallic taste that makes everything else you eat and drink taste gross for anywhere from a few days to a few weeks. These nuts only started seeing international trade in the last 15 years, but enough complaints have been lodged from Western countries that China has begun vetting their pine nut sources. Still, if you end up experiencing these symptoms after eating pine nuts, this is probably why. But if you do end up experiencing these symptoms, please go ahead and consult a legitimate medical professional as opposed to just trusting some dude with a podcast. If at all possible, I'd prefer my pine nuts to come from my homegrown American pinion pines. After thousands of years of cultural identity with people indigenous to the Southwest, they are still representative of culture in that region, with two species of pinion being the state trees of Nevada and New Mexico. One of the ways that culture manifests today is that pinion pines are popular choices for Christmas trees in those states. In my opinion, pinions make for great Christmas trees so long as you're in the region where they're native. In regards to structure and appearance, I still think that firs reign supreme for this specific practice, but I will unwaveringly support regional species relevance. And I know for many of you that any mention of Christmas should not come until after Thanksgiving, but at least we're past Halloween. So, if you're in the American Southwest, go ahead and put up the old Christmas pinion, hang those lights and garlands of native grasses, and enjoy some pine nuts in whatever form makes you happiest while savoring thousands of years of human history in every bite. Don't forget to check out my Patreon for hours of bonus content like my Tree Walks with Thomas video series. It's a great way to see more of my unfiltered love for trees with no scripting and editing, just me bouncing from tree to tree in parks and forests and along trails, chaotically spouting love and facts as they come to me. And 20% of every contribution gets donated to a sustainable nonprofit chosen quarterly by my patrons. Give it a try today with a 7-day free trial with all access at no cost at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees.
In two weeks, I'll be making a rare trip to Africa. In the spirit of my next topic, not in real life. I have work to go to. We'll be talking about one of the most significant trees in Pan-African culture as its seed, which may or may not be considered yet another nut, was carried along massive human migration routes across much of the continent. It's the marula tree, a keystone savanna species with wood used in World War II, fruit that supposedly gets elephants drunk, and rituals that settle marital disputes. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at BoomerangBrit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash MyFavoriteTrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love. Give it a hug.